glorious. Just want to uh, do a quick housekeeping issue here. Um, one of our star pupils, Judge Milligan, wanted to share with us, um, if you go to the website, the slides that Dr. Lloyd is presenting are available. He's printed them out. You can take a gander of what it looks like to print them out. Uh, that lecture, the, 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 this last one, I believe, was approximately 16 pages. But he has been enlightened and enjoys revisiting the lectures, and, and he wanted me to share that with you, that you would be blessed also to do that. And uh, we, again, recognize the tremendous amount of work that Dr. Lloyd's put into this. This is all original work for us. For us. How, how, how grateful we should be. And uh, again, we welcome and give praise and thanks to Dr. Lloyd for his efforts. With that in mind, let's open in prayer. Father God, it truly was a week of thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for, your creation, your blessings, and we ask for them so often that you bless us or bless me. But help us remember that there are issues in the world that, that also need our attention, that we should give to you and ask that you challenge us to reflect and react and stand up for. And as we study that and reflect upon that today, we ask for your Holy Spirit, that he would bless us with understanding, that your will become our will, that we become motivated to stand up where you call us to be your church, where you call us to be individual leaders. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, how's everyone doing? It's good to see you all again. Uh, speaking of Thanksgiving, I wanted to start with something that I think about all the time as a teacher. <clears throat> and it's because I know my history. I majored in history uh, in both my undergrad and my first graduate degree, my master's in cultural history. And one of the things that strikes me every time I go to hear a female colleague, every time I read something brilliant from a female student, every time one of them says something in class that just hadn't thought of, <laughs> every time a woman makes me laugh, <laughs> I think about that I should be so grateful to live now. Because these are the voices that would have been repressed in other times. If I'd have been teaching even 100, 200 years ago, there would have been no women in my class. And it would have been only men. And, and things have changed enough now. So I think I want to begin with a spirit of thankfulness that women, that things have changed for women, and women have spoken up, and I'm very grateful. And it makes me very sad sometimes, at the same time. You know how some of the greatest joys can also make you sad because you realize that things weren't always this way. And I think about all the women who didn't get to speak, didn't get to use their brilliance, didn't get to show how articulate they were. That breaks my heart. Doesn't it break your heart? <coughs> Often we'll hear an argument that I'll talk about, uh, the exceptional women argument, you know, that uh, there'll be all these Bible studies and things on these 
various women who are mentioned in the Bible and do have stories written about them, but they're few and far between. I don't want to talk about that, uh, why it's not even an effective argument. Because if you think if someone is exceptional, if I say you're exceptional, that's because I'm measuring you against something, right? <laughs> and so the bar for women has been quite different than for men. So, and also I wanted to say that there is a reason to the way that I ordered this that I began with slavery and then violence and then with gender because I see these as related issues. And that um, same as some of the same arguments used to justify slavery are right next to arguments for the subjugation of women. I don't think that's an accident. Some of the justifications of violence are right next to some of the justifications for violence against women. And unfortunately, I hear echoes of this happening right now, as you're familiar with Roy Moore and the controversies, not just with Roy Moore, but the controversies of the Me Too. This has become an extremely important issue to me. Uh, it always was, but doing this, going through this exercise of preparing for this, I've become more committed than ever. So, this week I want to talk about Christianity and gender. I'm saying gender, not sex, for a, a reason. <coughs> sex is the, your biology, your physiology. Gender is a construct. It's a societal construct. And we are taught that certain things are masculine and certain things are feminine. Uh, if you want to learn more about what's happening with that lately, the issue of Scientific American, it's not a, it's not a woman's issue. <laughs> Instead of calling it the woman's issue, they called it, it's not a woman's issue. Everybody has a stake in the new science of sex and gender. One of the things that one of the scientists found in here that just astounded me, she said that her research shows, and I find this very convincing, that the male and quote, the quote male and female brains are the same brain. Oh. <laughs> And then what happens is that we tap into different parts of those brains culturally, right? So certain things are attached with women's behavior, certain things are attached with men's behavior, but the brain is basically the same. So all of us are capable of all of the things that all of us are capable of, yes? So men can be empathetic, <laughs> right? Women can be aggressive and assertive. Yes, it's all in our brains. The scientist makes this very convincing argument. She says that although if you hand me a brain and ask me if it's a male's or a female's, I can tell you by the structure and everything. She said, but if you give me a person, if you, if you give me a brain, I, I, I mean, give me a person, I can't predict their brain. Ah. Are you with me? <laughs> Big difference. So. I think that's an interesting insight, and it also is very insightful in terms of, if that's true, then we've been making some huge mistakes for a long, long time. So I want to look first at the status of women in the Hebrew Bible, what roles they played, because role and status are not the same thing, are they? Sometimes I can have a low status, but take a higher role, yes? You'll get to that. Some of you are rolling your eyes like you don't get that, but we'll get that in a second. The New Testament writers say about women, their status and role. So what does the New Testament say? And we'll find that Jesus' 
approach to women is much more clear than it was with, the, with either slavery or violence. Much more clear with women. We'll see. How does Jesus address and treat women? What do the reformers say about women? Actually, I have a little bit about what uh, Paul and Peter said about women. Between there, I didn't put that in here. And what are the current Presbyterian policies and how do we react? Okay, that's a whole lot to do, so I'm gonna move quickly. But I, this time I put little summary notes on the side to keep myself from taking too much time on any slide. <laughs> all right, treatment of women in the Hebrew Bible. First of all, unmarried women were not allowed to leave the home of their father without permission. Married women were not allowed to leave the home of their husband without permission. They were normally restricted to roles of little or no authority. Notice that it says normally, right? They could not testify in court. They could not appear in public venues. They were not allowed to talk to strangers. And women had to wear head coverings. Interestingly enough, Jesus ends up violating every one of these. All right, there are two stories of creation in Genesis, but somehow if you want to subjugate women, only one of them really comes to mind. The first story is... Uh, God describes creating man. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he, him, male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them, both in the what? Image of God. This is actually a later story than the other one, even though it's first. The other story is the one more familiar to the point that I've heard this used in so many different contexts, Adam and Eve. In fact, it's kind of a cliche, all the way since Adam and Eve. In this creation story, as you know, man was created first, and then he got lonely, right? He's naming all the animals, and nothing uh, looked like it fit with him. And so God made him a, quote, helpmeet or helper, Eve. <coughs> and he asserts his authority over Eve by naming her. Because if you remember, that's when he names the animals, that's his assertion of authority over the animals, right? His right to name them. So he names her. That's his right of authority over her. It goes a step further in the curse. Remember when, they, uh, when the fall happens, the curse is, your desire will be on your husband and he shall rule over you. And, the, and it's translated in different ways. Uh, dominate, master, or rule over. But it's pretty clear what it means, doesn't it? And this is part of the quote, curse. Now, there's a good question about curses. They can be lifted, can't they? Okay, and though I hear this used all the time as an argument for women's subjugation, I also read in the New Testament that the curse was lifted, that it was taken upon Christ on the cross. Yes, the curse. What happened to that? All right. Also in Genesis, we see the story of Sarai telling Abram that she can just uh, have a he can have a baby with Hagar. Apparently, Hagar was not asked, and they didn't have to be. If you were a slave, you weren't asked. And we can assume that sexual relations were not asked about any, in any way. And then in Genesis 19, we see the men of Sodom gathered around Lot's house, and they want to know, quote, know the men uh, that have come to visit. And as you know, there's this hideous story where Lot offers his daughters to be raped instead. All right, so this is not exactly a pretty picture 
of women's roles in society in Genesis. Also, you can see that Abraham could have concubines and as many wives as he wanted to. This was Old Testament law. There's also a similar story in Judges where some uh, men want to have sex with men, and uh, uh, the, the the main character offices his daughter to them, and they rape her until she's dead. And as the source I used said, he didn't seem to notice until he walked out the door and tripped over her body. Wow. Okay, in Exodus, women are, are treated as property. Here's one to think about. In the Ten Commandments, it says you should not cover your neighbor's house or neighbor's wife. What came second? And what's it right before? Servants. Right? Or anything else that is your neighbor's what? Property. All right, so a wife was considered property. In Exodus 21, we looked at this last week. A slave owner was permitted to give a woman to his male slaves as a wife. He didn't have to ask her. A father could sell his daughter as a slave. If a man seduced a virgin, the woman was expected to marry the seducer. If he hit a pregnant woman and it caused a miscarriage, he had to pay a fine, not to her, but to her husband. And as I put up here, it was not considered adultery for a married man to have sex with a single woman or a prostitute. That was not adultery. It was only adultery if you violated another man by sleeping with his wife. <laughs> now what kills me is, where are the single women? Right? The single women are still under the authority of their fathers, so you still insulted somebody. Little loophole. <clears throat> okay, I'll put summaries on the side of this, but um, printing this out is a good idea. <laughs> All right, summary. Women were not allowed to become priests. They were considered unclean because of menstruation and bearing children, and they were twice as unclean for female children as for male children. This is in the laws. Adultery applied only to sex with married or engaged women, and was it a front to the male, not to her? Cash value for women was lower than for men. Boys were worth five shekels, girls were worth three. In Numbers, another jolly book, the census counted only male infants under the age of one month. If a woman was suspected of committing adultery, her husband would make her go through a ritual Uh, She had to drink the sweepings from the temple floor. And if, uh, you know, she was guilty if she started to waste away. Well, who wouldn't waste away if you just... Salmonella? (coughs) If a man dies... Okay, so Hebrews only counted boys in the men in sentence. Censuses, women suspected of having an affair had to go through a life-threatening ordeal, which often would cause, if they were pregnant, would cause a miscarriage. And women receive no inheritance whatsoever. And it goes to great lengths to describe how it goes to a male. Yes? Goes to the brothers, goes to the uncles, goes to, <laughs> it just keeps looking around for a nearby male. And a woman's vow could not be, could be undone by her father or her husband. So even her vows meant nothing. Deuteronomy. Again, I'll go to the summary, but the passages are there if you want to look at them later. 
women can be taken captive and married. So, you know, it says if you see a beautiful woman and you're, it's in, uh, you know, she's a foreign woman, just take her. <coughs> she's to be stoned if she's not a virgin at her wedding. She's forced to marry her rapist. How about that one? Divorced at her husband's whim. Forced to marry. It says, it says if he finds some uncleanness in her. It doesn't describe. So I imagine that was used as an excuse for just about anything. She's forced to marry the brother of her husband, widowed. That's called levirate marriage, right? And she loses a hand if she even accidentally touches a man's testicles. Not her husband, of course. All right. I was wanting to say in the second temple period, (laughs) things got better, but they got worse. And you have to think, Deuteronomy actually appears and is codified into into the system in the second temple period. So this actually Deuteronomy reflects the second temple laws. Second temple period, they become second class Jews, excluded from the worship and teaching of God with, with status scarcely above that of slaves. This is a quote from B.M. Metzger. From the, in the Oxford Companion to the Bible. You can also see that the temple was set up to a woman could not get in. All right, so the priests, let's see if I can get my finger to go on here. There we go. The priests were allowed in this area, the men in this area, the women over here, and just outside of the court of the Gentiles. So it was set up to where the women couldn't even really directly see in. They could hear what was going on, but they couldn't take part see in or do any kind of reading. Uh, that's just an explanation of all of that. That's the court of the women. All right, so one of the arguments against all of this that I find pretty common today is exceptional women. Well, despite all of that, some women did have authority. Some women did make a place. And I'm thinking, well, despite all of that, what if it wasn't there? What w- how would it have been different? So three women uh, are mentioned as prophets or prophetesses. Miriam, the wife of Moses and her brother and their brother Aaron were all considered prophets. Um, but when she tried to pull her own authority and said, is it through Moses alone that the Lord speaks? Does God not speak to us also? She did not want Moses to marry a second foreigner. He was already married to a foreigner, um, a Midianite woman. <coughs> But despite the law, he was going to marry a Cushite. She spoke against it, and she was cursed with leprosy. Now, eventually, the leprosy was lifted when she repented, but things didn't go well for her as a prophetess. Deborah, let's hang on to Deborah. This is like, she's like the center of everything. (laughs) This is the only one you can really hang on to and go, wow, she did it all. She was a military leader. She refused to actually... God told her to go into battle herself, but she's like, I gotta have a man. These are the times I'm living in. And she got a guy to, to do it, but she did all the thinking and the planning, and she's, she's the one that pretty much won the war. And then, amazingly enough, after that, unlike some of the other, quote, judges, she functioned as a prophet and an arbiter of disputes. So full-fledged service. This is very early. Of course, this is the judges' period, so that's right after the taking of the promised land. In Second Chronicles, there's Huldah, and this one kind of surprised me. 
When they find the book of Deuteronomy, or what we think are parts of the book of Deuteronomy, when they find that in the Second Temple period, they need it verified. They want to have someone stamp it, approval. They go to a woman. How about that? Hulda the prophet. Now we have no writings from her, no books of Hulda, but there she is. And she had a tremendous authority and power. She got to say, and she said, it seems right to me, and it was instituted. Okay. We also have a lot of nameless women. One nameless woman throws a millstone on one of the enemy's heads. <laughs> Fun story. So she's a heroine of sorts, is she not? And we also have Judith, who cuts off the head of an enemy. And these women are depicted often all the way through the Renaissance as at least figures of female power and ways to scare men. Because some of the pictures of Judith are pretty frightening. Somehow, though, her breast is hanging out. <laughs> this is why I don't put a whole lot of paintings in these things. Because <laughs> some of them are just kind of ridiculous. But anyway, um, and then there's Esther, who has a whole book, which is pretty cool. And uh, she actually saves the Jewish people by uh, disobeying the king, basically, and uh, exposing uh, a plot to kill the Jews. So there are some powerful women. But most of the women are valued for what? Their offspring. And even some of those women are valued because of their offspring. All right, so, I mean, not to knock it, having offspring is pretty cool. Men can't really do that exactly. <laughs> They're part of it, but they can't do it. All right, so there's Bilda, Rachel's maid, who bore Dan and Naphtali. So a lot of people don't even think about that, that not all the 12 tribes of Israel are from the, quote, biblical wives. Some of them are from concubines, from and uh, they're from servants. Zilpah, um, Gad and Asher. Hagar, as we know, bore Ishmael. Hannah was promised she could have a son if she dedicated him to the Lord, so she was the mother of Samuel the prophet. Rahab, the quote, harlot, and it's funny because that just became her name. Rahab the harlot. Not just Rahab, uh, but she helped uh, get the Hebrews into Jerusalem with the, with the red string. Uh, she's listed in Jesus' genealogy. Ruth is the hero of a folk tale in the Hebrew Bible. She was a Moabite and uh, married a Jew and then chose to move to, uh, with her mother-in-law to uh, Bethlehem and married another Jew, Boaz. And it's a very sweet, lovely story in a very violent book overall. It's, it's quite a relief <laughs> it's, it's quite pretty. <coughs> but there are things going on in that, too, that you can see uh, Boaz is, uh, should marry her by right, but he, he puts up this fight, and there are, there's a whole lot of kind of ugly laws about women revealed in that book as well. And then Tamar, the wife of Ur, <coughs> Judah promised her, uh, when she lost her husband, her father-in-law, Judah, promised her she would marry another son of his, but he reneged on the promise. So she fools him into thinking she's a prostitute and has sex with him and ends up having Perez, who is also listed in the line of Jesus. 
Okay, there are also the uppity women. <laughs> those people that write those books from like the other side of things need to get a hold of some of the uppity women. And there's a picture of Jezebel for you. All right, Adaliah. How many people knew there was a queen of Judah? Six years. She was queen for six years. Her son died. She took the throne. But of course, men being men, they decided they didn't want that. So they elected somebody else king. The Levites named their own king and had her executed. She was chased down and killed. She exposed their, their plot in the temple. Like, what are you doing? I'm the queen. What's the matter with you? And they said, well, it'd be bad to kill her here, so just chase her off. And they chased her off and killed her in the streets. So execute is kind of a formal way of saying it. Jezebel, the good old Jezebel, uh, she was of Sidonian royalty. She married Ahab, king of Israel, and she hated Ezekiel. Um, got a lot of bad press for bringing idolatry back into the country, but idolatry was already in that country. <coughs> but Jezebel dies a horrible death, falling out of a window, and the dogs lap her blood. Then Potiphar's wife, as you all know, that's a nice fun story too, an Egyptian woman who frames Jacob for adultery when he didn't do anything, he's completely innocent, and, whew, man, I don't know about you, but I could use a funny story. Read this funny story of Rachel. Rachel steals the household idols, which reveals how old the story is, right? She's still an idol worshiper. The lineage of Jesus, but still an idol worshiper. She steals the household idols from her father, and when he comes to look for them, she hides them under a blanket, uh, uh, yeah, like a blanket, and then tells her father, I can't get up because I'm in that time of month. Finally, a funny story. Okay, but that's pretty uppity behavior, is it not? Lying to your dad. <laughs> but you kind of enjoy these moments. They're rare, right? Where you get a, a view of a woman in her fullest personality, right? You don't see that very often in the Old Testament. All right, I just put some notes about who Jezebel was for reference. All right. This is a guy named Arthur Sido. He's on the net writing things, and he's trying to defend patriarchy, believe it or not. <coughs> and one of his defenses is uh, the Genesis Eve account, right? He says, God is not merely observing that childbirth is going to hurt and that women will be ruled by their husbands and their men will coax food from the ground and swear their brow. He's decreeing it. Okay. That kind of ignores that there's another story, doesn't it? The other story says male and female he created them. And, as I note at the bottom, the whole history of the world is patriarchal, right? So does that justify its continuance, or should we adjust ourselves a little bit? He also offers this. This is the argument from absence. God used men. Therefore, <laughs> Therefore, what? Right? That was the culture, so what did you expect? And he gives this second argument that I hear. It's a general argument for patriarchy. 
That doesn't, of course, mean that God never used women in the Old Testament, just that he primarily, normally, and overwhelmingly used men as prophets, priests, kings, and the women functioned and served differently. Oh, the old different function argument. Yes? If you want to get a feminist riled up, try the different function argument. It isn't that it's not true. It, there isn't some truth in it. Yes? Women bear babies. That is a different function. Yes? There are some functional differences. <laughs> But when it's used as an argument, it always ends up that somebody's the lower one. Right? Somebody's the less important. So it wouldn't bother me so much. I mean, people tell me I have a different function at work than some of my colleagues. True. Right? I teach different courses. I have a different function. Another, no problem with that. But if you look down on one group totally as a secondary function, and it doesn't matter if you try to elevate it, you're still kind of making that distinction. All right, so this is called the different roles argument, and glosses over the fact that that argument is used to put woman, quote, in their place, right? Eternal subservience, and we'll look at that. So, to summarize what we've done so far, there's a huge gap between the roles women played and the status of women in the Bible. The status was zero, the roles sometimes were pretty good. All the way up to Deborah, kind of hitting the top mark. <laughs> Maybe Esther. And then other people, Ruth. They were exceptional, but they were exceptional because they stood out against a background of patriarchal injustice. Right? And even they had to deal with it. Ruth had to deal with it. Deborah had to deal with it. They had to fight it. They had to resist it. From a contemporary point of view, we can point to the exceptions. And I've heard these same arguments used to say something like racism is over because Oprah is on television. Are you getting where I'm going here? <laughs> we have women in Congress, so therefore it's over. And I'm like, how many women do we have in Congress? Is it anywhere near the population? No. All right. But the majority of women still led lives of subservience and anonymity. They're not even named. They weren't counted in the census. Even the most exceptional women were valued only because they bore a significant son or two. The story of Adam and Eve and an argument from absence of women leaders provides a template for patriarchal interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures, which isn't hard to do. Okay, so the question is, do we abstract some of the restrictions? I think we all agreed that some of those restrictions were absolutely hideous. True? So do we take some of them and say, those were time-bound, we're not doing that anymore, and then other ones, these are, these are permanent. And then the second question, who decides? And I think for much of the history of the world, who decided? Men. And what they call sometimes patriarchal women. Women who buy into it themselves. Yes, and oppress other women. We've seen this happen, have we not? My mother has said things like she didn't want Hillary for president because women can't be president. I'm like, what? You're my mother. What are you talking about? <laughs> are you with me? That's called a patriarchal woman. You buy into it. It is easy to buy into it in our society because if you play along with it, it's easier. Life's easier. All right. What about Paul and Peter? And notice I'm going to Jesus after Paul and Peter, because my usual method is this. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm just one of these people, like, go to the source. Like, where did Christianity come from? Jesus. Who commented on it? Peter and Paul. So I kind of want to know what Jesus says. Am I making any sense? To help me interpret what Peter and Paul added to, how they interpreted it. All right. So as you can see with this little coloring book, we're pretty happy about women's head coverings in the Old Testament. Let's color them as colorfully as they did. All right, so hierarchy and subservience. Men, okay, so here's the hi- hierarchy of subservience, and this is the argument made by Paul, actually more than Peter, pretty much Paul, is that there's Christ, and then there's men, and there's women. Yes? So women serve men, and men serve Christ. That's what that long thing says. It's, it's fancy language, but that's what it said. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body as is himself Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, wives should submit to everything to their husbands. So, it's, um, women don't have a direct relationship to Christ in this view. All right. There's also a servant hierarchy argument. Men serve the Lord, women serve men, and children and slaves serve them both. Wow. Now, does it take any genius to point out what Mary Wollstonecraft pointed out in the 1700s? Wait a second. Children grow up. Slaves can buy their freedom. Who ends up still be serving? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. And I've heard the arguments. I've heard people say, well, husbands have a responsibility too. And I'm like, yes, I get that. But it always places them on top. Theirs is the more important job, always, at least from a Pauline perspective. But Paul also says this. It is for freedom. What? Why did Christ set us free? He says, it is for freedom Christ set us free. Keep rolling. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of what? Slavery, servitude. What? You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated for Christ. You have fallen away from grace. All right, there's this bizarre mixture of adherence to the law in terms of women and then these grand statements of liberation and freedom from servitude for all believers. Do they fit together? All right, in another passage, in 1 Corinthians, he repeats the same argument. But in this one, he kind of gives some background arguments. He says, women were created for men. There's the Adam and Eve story again, despite the fact there is another creation story there. Here's the weirdest argument. He says, women should cover their heads because they attract angels. I've heard arguments about covering your heads. The other argument that they cover their heads is, is because they're, it's their husband's, they're their husband's glory. Yes? So, in other words, keep other men from looking. But I think these arguments made the most sense in the first century. Yes? Particularly the angel one. I haven't heard this one discussed lately. 
Yeah, that's, that's a little, okay. Then there's the famous passage where Paul tells women to do what? Keep silent. A fancy way of saying it, as you put it, shut up. Women should keep silent in churches. Wait a second. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. They should be in submission. As the what says? The law that we're freed from through faith. Why is he pulling the law out for some things and then saying we're out of it in others? Overall, overall, he says, what? You're free from the law, right? It's faith, justification by faith. It's what Luther argued the gospel was supposed to be about. And yet, here he is pulling the law out. And then he pulls out the old chestnut. Adam was formed first, then Eve. So, and Adam was not deceived. Oh boy, here comes the big one. This one lasts for centuries. You were fooled. We weren't fooled. You were fooled. Right? And women get blamed for the fall of humanity. That's a big load to carry, isn't it? And you hear this repeated over and over. But how can she be saved? Through childbearing. So again, a secondary status under men, not a direct relationship with Christ, and then turn around and really kind of save through the kids. So you're saved through your husband and your kids, but you're not really, the option's not really open for you, for you as a woman. So Paul tells us we're no longer under the law, then he uses it to say women need to keep silent. He also tells us that because women were deceived, that the path of salvation is through childbearing and submission. Wow. But doesn't he also say? <laughs> but when, when the time had fully come, guess what he says there in Greek? When time was pregnant. God sent his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem whom? Those under the law that we will receive what? Adoption as Sons. I wish he'd have said sons and daughters, but that's good stuff because that's what he meant, isn't it? Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts to call out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Do you see the contradiction? I think Paul is in the middle of this conversation in his own head. Peter doesn't add a whole lot. He just says, you know, the same thing. Be submissive. But in this one, he's looking at it. If you're submissive, then you'll win your husband over. Okay, so now it's like not a direct relationship. Save to your children. But if you are saved, you could actually have, save your husband. You're just saving everybody, right? The door is not directly open for women. But if they are in it, they could help the men. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Have you read that story lately? <laughs> if you've read about Sarah, it's, we get a picture of her personality. When God says you're going to have a baby, what'd she do? She laughed. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Doesn't sound like she was submitting all the time. Calling him Lord, and you are a children. 
if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. All right. Husbands, live with your woman as the weaker vessel. I know. I asked my students the other day, do we, you still hear that? Women are the, the weaker sex. And like, I still hear it. They're not very appreciative, but they've heard it. But it says what? They are what? Heirs with you. Well, which one is it? Right? Oh, they're weak vessels, but they're heirs with me. I don't get it. I think he's in the middle of a thought there. All right, so in the time of Jesus, what was happening towards women? I want to look at Jesus and what he did. Ritual exclusion. Three times a year, all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. What about the women? Well, they don't have to. We have the court of the women. As I talked about before, the women were Levitically unclean. And they uh, were not counted as members in synagogues either. They weren't counted as members in the temple. They weren't counted as members in the synagogue. They did not get to recite the Daily Shema. They did not read the Torah in the synagogue. The Mishnah says uh, uh, that all all the ceremonies of the year are incumbent on men. In rabbinic literature, it was actually worse. Women were not to be saluted, spoken to in the street. They were not to be instructed in the law. They were not to receive an inheritance. A woman was to walk six paces behind her husband. If she uncovered her head, she was considered a harlot. While Peter and Paul kind of just went along with these, Jesus violated how many of them? All of them. He taught women. He touched women. He spent time with women. He had women followers. He had women disciples. He accepted money from them for his ministry. Hmm. The Mishnah taught the woman was like a gentle slave who could be entailed by intercourse, money, or writ. Women were allowed to see very little education. They could not be disciples of any great rabbi. They certainly could not travel with a rabbi. Woman's testimony was considered suspect, and they did not have a right to divorce. The New Testament tells us that Jesus had female disciples who traveled with him and supported him financially. He relied on female testimony for his resurrection. All right. Now, I'm going to f- go through these quickly, but I, I, I put um, some of the specific encounters Jesus had with women in the slideshow. So if you go back and look at it, you can get more of the details and see the actual passages. But one of the points that one of the authors that wrote about this said, Jesus was very concerned with the treatment of women. In fact, a great portion of the ministry is direct relationship with women. First peop- one of the first people that Jesus healed was Peter's mother. Jesus healed the woman with the hemorrhage. Wow, that's crazy. You're not supposed to touch a woman, period. But when she's on her period, so that was a double. He raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead. He healed Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And when Mary and Martha pleaded with him, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Here's some passages. Luke 8 says, The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna... Later on, Mary was called a prostitute and a whore. She was not. Go back and look. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Interesting. And many others. And how, what? And many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. That's a direct quote from Luke. Jesus' teaching, he focused on women. One woman loses a coin. Two women are grinding at the mill before his return to glory. He uses them in his parables. 
He ministers to a woman of unquestionable, I mean, of questionable reputation, he who cast the first stone. The woman caught her in adultery. Again, violating the law. She should have been stoned, right? Woman caught her in adultery, stoned. That's the law. Nope, I don't think so. You're well out with sin. You cast the first stone. Who do you stand up for? A woman. Matthew 27. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministered to him. And looking from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Joseph, well, yeah, and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So that names even more. How radical was he? A woman could not bear witness. Who did Jesus appear to first? Yeah. Depends on which gospel. Three women or a woman. But he, he definitely chose women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. He said, go tell the disciples. The disciples, of course, didn't believe them. Because what's the tradition? Those women, they're crazy. We can't, we can't trust the testimony. Women continue to be included in the early church. We'll see that. Okay, so here's some examples. I'm going to go through these quickly, but um, when he is criticized for putting his hands on a woman and healing her, straightening her out, they criticize him for doing it on the Sabbath. And he says, then he said, uh, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, the daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day? Hmm. Luke teaches a woman, Mary and Martha, right? And um, Martha's worried about, you know, I got all this stuff to do, right? Just having Thanksgiving, I understand this. <laughs> Get out of the kitchen. Just don't touch me. That's the, you know, that's the way it goes on Thanksgiving, right? We got things to do here. Right? She's doing all of that. And then he's, and the other one is sitting at his feet, listening, and he is teaching what? A woman. This is against rabbinic law. He's teaching what? Whom? A woman. He teaches a Samaritan woman. There's a whole chapter, a whole section of a chapter on this, right? Where he meets the woman at the well. And they have this huge conversation. Like, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for the living water. Right? So he teaches her. And it's interesting, I wanted to point out something about that passage. Verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Rabbis aren't supposed to talk to women. But look at the second part. But no one asked, (laughs) what do you want or why are you talking with her? That kind of suggests something, doesn't it? I think it was a habit. Like they're not going to ask him. Maybe they asked him the first time. Why are you talking to women? By this time, they're staying out of this. Because I'm sure he would have said, are you ridiculous? This is a daughter of Abraham. All right. We also had early leaders in the Christian church, which are in Acts. It talks about that Philip the Evangelist had four unmarried daughters who were all prophets. In Philippians, Paul refers to Euodia and Sintich, they're co-workers who are active evangelicals spreading the gospel. Paul refers to Phoebe as a minister, a deacon in the church of Centuria. Paul refers to Priscilla as one of his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And the biggest kick in the head, Paul refers 
to a male and apostle Andronicus and a female apostle Junia. And later, on, later translations tried to change her to Junius. But he refers to her with a her in another place, so that was kind of cut off. All right, so here's the same guy saying all this stuff about women being sold in a church, admitting that all these other women are fellow servants with him, even one a fellow apostle. In the early period, women had a little bit different roles. The Gnostic texts uh, that were eventually considered not Christian, but it, you know, in the early church, these were circulating along with the books that we're familiar with. They said that women held senior roles as teachers, prophets, and missionaries. They conducted rituals, baptism in the Eucharist, and performed exorcisms. The Gospel of Philip, which didn't make it into the Bible, said that Mary Magdalene uh, was a companion of Jesus in a position of high authority within the early Christian movement. The Gospel of Mary said Mary Magdalene was a leader of Jesus' disciples. So either these are completely unfounded or somehow history kind of lost that other trail. We also have St. Philomena. She headed a Christian theological school in Rome during the second century CE. That's proof and verified. What about the Reformation? Well, it didn't get a lot better, but it got a little better. The one thing that the reformers did and Luther himself, because he was a monk and his wife was a nun, they both left that and married each other. Uh, so one of the statements he was trying to make is that uh, this whole idea of making women nuns, this is messed up, and that women and men are both in the priesthood of Christ. So we got that far. Basically saying, what is this ridiculous hatred of marriage? Marriage is a good thing, and love between a man and a woman is a good thing. <coughs> But at the same time, by closing the convent, they actually kind of lessened women's options. <coughs> and the reformers promoted education for boys and girls. Girls were, of course, as you might guess, educated less, but at least the reformers wanted to educate women, mostly because of this idea, priesthood of believers, and that everyone should be able to read the scriptures, right? Everyone should be literate. So it kind of worked out. Um, as it says somewhere, oh, and uh, more than 90% of pastors' wives were literate after the Reformation. Considering that before the Reformation, a lot of priests were illiterate, that's a step forward. All right, what about the Presbyterian Church? There's a whole organization in the Presbyterian Church USA, have their own organization. It says, caring community of women forgiven and freed by God and Jesus Christ and empowered with the Holy Spirit and strengthen the Presbyterian Church and witness to the promise of God's kingdom by nurturing faith through prayer and Bible studies, supporting the mission of the church worldwide and working for peace and justice. Sounds good to me. And, but the Presbyterian Church is still divided in the Presbyterian Church in America. It only ordains men in obedience to the New Testament standard who rule the church and teach doctrine. Ministers, ruling heirs, and deacons in the PCA are men only in obedience to New Testament standard for those who rule the church and teach doctrine. Okay, that's the same thing twice. Uh, in Presbyterian Church USA, men and women are ordained. All right, so where does that take us? All right. You know how I always have a reality check. Reality check time. You've probably heard of this guy. He defended Roy Moore 
This practice of dating underage girls. I'm laughing because it's painful, not because it's funny. He defended Roy Warren, saying that, you know, the biblical patriarchs married 14, 12-year-old girls, so. Okay. Now, it made national news. This guy actually writes under the name Larry Solomon, which is not his name. He, <laughs> he says he doesn't give his name because of the verse, Jesus hid himself. Okay, so he wrote this. Was Roy Moore violating biblical commands and dating teenage girls? He writes, our feminist and egalitarian cultures expanded the definition of how long girls remain children. Our culture has expanded childhood for girls to onset of puberty all the way to age 18. So he says up here that God forbids men from marrying a young girl who has not passed the flower of her age, 1 Corinthians 7, 36. So if she's menstruating, she can get married as far as he's concerned. And then down here he says that it can be an act of civil disobedience to marry a young girl that age, not to pursue them for sex. He said that's the only thing that, that Moore did wrong. He said he was pursuing sex with unmarried girls. If he was trying to marry them, it's okay. That's what he said. And he's basing it on the same scriptures we looked at today, isn't he? He said up here in a second article, are you ready for this one? Roy Moore is not the first man to be falsely accused of sexual assault by a woman. Thousands of years ago, another godly man named Joseph, okay, I don't even want to get into that. That's the most ridiculous argument I think I've ever heard. And yet, is the door open? So here's the question. If that's the way we're going to do this, then how about inheritance, exclusions, enslavement, and rape laws? Why are they wrong? All right, so to conclude, both Hebrew Bible and the New Testament specifically support the subjugation of women. There's no doubt about it. And in the case of slavery and violence, just like everything else I've talked about, Christians have to seek principles rather than specific passages. For instance, the first creation story. Second of all, Paul's passage, in Christ there is no male or female. There's also some Enlightenment authors like Mary Wollstonecraft who points out that, uh, you know, any good scientist knows we all have the same amount of ribs. So something's happening with that, that story. All right. Now, let me wrap up a little bit with some things that I'm kind of coming from and through. Like I said, sex refers to your biological identity. Sex is inherited. Your gender refers to your roles. Most gender restrictions for women in the Bible accompany and mirror restrictions on slave and property. Notice how they were almost always in the same place as instructions to slaves. So do we challenge and discount laws related to slavery and count those applied to women as timeless? We discount laws on rape, testimony, and marrying and brothers but do we cling to others? And then what criteria do we use to decide? Okay. If we're looking for principles, Jesus ignores the Hebrew Bible and rabbinic regulations about touching, speaking to, and welcoming women as followers. There's something just on, from Wikipedia. Martin Luther insisted all Christians share the same spiritual priesthood. Protestants advocated for education for boys and girls. But the equality of women remains controversial, and I'm, I'm still mystified. Why is it controversial? When people say controversial on the news, I mean, okay, there's somebody that's really causing some trouble. You know what I'm saying? Some things, why are they controversial? 
All right. I just want you to look at this, consider this. These are behaviors of sexual predators. <laughs> okay? This is on a website for people who have been violated and sexually abused. And I, predators seek power and control over their victim. Hmm. Blackmail is used in threats to the victim's life, family members, pets, and the threat of jail, false accusations. Predators may have positions of authority or trust in the family, communities, committees, groups, or organizations. The victim's word may not be believed against the so-called pillar of the community. Predators will use the threat of false accusations or assault or rape to force a victim to submit to control. Sexual predators isolate their victim. So here's my reflection. This is just me. As I read over the regulation and customs regarding women in the New Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, I could not help but hear echoes of the current discussion on sexual predators and attempts to justify their behaviors. This is not to say that all remarks on women in the scriptures fit with these descriptions, but on the other hand, many of the prohibitions open the door to this kind of abuse. So I don't think we can accept the passages carte blanche. Why can I say that? Because Jesus completely stepped beyond gender prohibitions, scriptural and customary boundaries of his day. He approached women as human beings. Should we, can we do no less? And let me end with the words of Paul. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now this faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave or free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. Thank you. Any, yes. Yes.